Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Well, a big hello to those of you who are here at Central Campus. Also, those of you meeting together at our regional campuses in Airdrie, down at Bridgeland, and in South Calgary. Uh, Also, the Crowfoot Theaters in the northwest part of Calgary, and those of you who are watching online. A number of years ago, during our summer vacation, uh, our family was watching the once popular television game show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And on this particular show, the contestant had already won $30,000, and the question for $60,000 was something like, who wrote the 1927 novel, Twilight Sleep. Now, none of us had a clue, and we were in shock when this fellow got it right. One of our sons said, this guy is smart. I mean, he knows his stuff, and we all agreed. I mean, as far as I was concerned, anyone who knows anything about anyone who wrote a book in 1927 either has to be really intelligent or really old. And this guy wasn't very old. Well, the next question was worth $125,000. And the question that was asked was this. Which city in Canada puts on the greatest annual outdoor show in the world? (laughs) The choices were Vancouver, Toronto, Winnipeg, and of course, Calgary. Now, don't you wish that you were asked that question for $125,000? Right on. Well, this brilliant young man didn't have a clue. And we threw our hands up in the air and said, how can you not know about the Calgary Stampede? You know, sometimes what is so obvious, so clear, so simple to us is totally outside of the understanding or the experience of someone else. Not because they're unintelligent, Because they simply don't know about it. They haven't studied it. They've given no thought to it. Now, there are many questions in life that we will not have answers to, and that's okay because we're finite beings and we can't possibly know or remember everything. And at the end of the day, not knowing who wrote a novel back in 1927 or who won the Stanley Cup in 1957, anyone remember by any chance? Just, yeah, okay. yeah. Well, the chances are high. Yeah, he said Montreal Canadiens. You know, chances are good, but I don't know. Just throwing that out there. Anyways, you know, not knowing who actually won you know, the Stanley Cup in 1957 may prevent me from winning a trivia game, but it will not have a long-term negative impact on my life. But there are some questions in life that, if ignored, will have long-term consequences, not only in this life, but also in relation to our eternity. Questions about God and his existence. Questions about why we're here and and how to live a meaningful, purpose-filled life. Questions about the afterlife and how we can prepare for the afterlife. Over the last couple of sessions, I've sought to make a compelling case for the existence of God 
And the evidence overwhelmingly points to there being a God. Which, of course, leaves us wondering, well, assuming there is a God, then can he be known? Who is he? And does this God even want to know us? The Christian faith teaches that God loves us. He wants to be in relationship with us. And toward that end, he is pursuing us. He is seeking to reveal himself to us. And he's revealing himself in a number of ways. God's revealing himself, we're told in Romans 1, he's revealing himself through his creation. In Psalm 19, verse 1, King David said, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. In other words, the psalmist is saying, when you reflect on the vastness, the symmetry, the fine-tuning, the order and the beauty of the universe, or if you reflect on the amazing complexity of the human mind and body, and you calculate the odds of all of that originating by chance, you just know intuitively that there is a God, a creator, a designer of all that we see around us. God's revealing himself through his creation. God's also revealing himself through his son, Jesus Christ. In the Gospel of John chapter 1, we read about the living word, which is Jesus and this is what we read. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. The word, of course, is referring to Jesus. And Jesus is a member of the Godhead who came to make a way for us to know God and to come in right relationship with God. He came to reveal to us what God is like. If you want to know what God is like. Look at Jesus. Look at the character of Jesus. If you want to know what God thinks of children, look at how Jesus interacted with children. If you want to know what God thinks of the marginalized, the poor, the oppressed, or if you want to know what, what God thinks uh, of the materialist, the greedy, the abusive person, then look at what Jesus has to say about them, how he interacted with people like that. Now, there are so many other ways that God is revealing himself to us, but for the purpose of this message, I want to give special focus to one key way that God is and has been revealing himself to us, and that is through his written word. The scriptures the Bible. In the first chapter of Hebrews, we read, in the past, referring to the Old Testament era, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets, and many times and in many ways. 
But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. In the Old Testament era, God revealed himself, of course, to many people, but particularly to Moses and the prophets. And in the New Testament, God revealed himself through Jesus to Jesus' disciples, the apostles. And he inspired these folks to, and guided them to write the Holy Scriptures, or what we refer to as the Bible today. All the essentials that we need to know about God and his purpose and direction for our lives are found in the Bible. Now, as we saw in the Man on the Street video just a few moments ago, many people in our city do not share this perspective of the Bible. Many believe the Bible is full of myths, is filled with errors and contradictions, and has been deliberately and significantly changed down through the years. And if that is where you're at, well, I'm just really glad that you're joining us today for this series because I want to share with you the convictions that I've come to regarding the scriptures. I've devoted the better part of four decades studying this book, and I've come to the conviction that this book is no ordinary book, but that it is, in fact, God's word. It is totally trustworthy. The God of the Bible is my ultimate point of reference. From my perspective, it is the standard by which all other philosophies and theories should be measured against. And so I want to devote several sermons to introducing you to um, the reasons why I've come to embrace the reliability of the Bible, the evidences that that is founded upon. And I pray that, that you will give serious consideration to what I share with you. Before I really get into it, would you join me in prayer as we dedicate this to the Lord? I'm going to ask you to stand, if you would. Our Heavenly Father, again, I want to thank you for revealing yourself to us through your creation, through your son Jesus, the living word, and through the scriptures, the written word. I ask, Lord, that you would focus our minds, you'd remove distractions, you'd soften our hearts, Lord, to receive what you want to say to us, and then you'd give us the courage to respond in whatever way you'd have us to. Before I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Now, in this message, I'm going to focus on just one evidence for the reliability of the Bible. I believe the Bible is reliable because of the testimony of biblical inspiration and infallibility. You see, one of the first and most important questions that people wonder about is, do the original scriptures speak truth or falsehood? How do we know that what people wrote in the Bible is from God and therefore true? Some critics assert that only parts of the Bible are true. 
If this is so, the question then um, is, how do we know that any of it's true? Well, Christians believe that the Bible originated in the mind of God, not in the mind of man. 2 Peter chapter 121 says, For prophecy never had its origin in human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Bible is the product of God himself. However, God chose to deliver his divine message through people. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This verse tells us that all of the Bible, not some of it, but all of it, was given to man by inspiration. It was breathed by God. Biblical inspiration means that God so superintended the writers of the scripture that they wrote what he wanted them to write and were kept from error in doing so. Now, this does not mean that the human writers of scripture were merely human tape recorders through whom God dictated his message word for word. No, as you read the various scriptures, you see that their full personalities and their writing styles and their backgrounds entered into their writings. However, even though their human uniqueness came into play, God guided the writers to write exactly what he wanted to be written. He did not, uh, uh, sorry, they did not leave out anything that God wanted to be recorded. And so when we read the scriptures, we are reading the word of God. And because God is truth, when we read his word, we know what we are reading is true. In fact, Jesus affirmed this himself. In John 17, verse 17, Jesus said to his father, your word is truth. Paul challenged his disciple Timothy with these words. He says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles what? The word of truth. Now, this is what Christians believe concerning the Bible. Now, of course, many do not believe this about the Bible. So let's consider some of their objections. Some do not trust the Bible because they believe that the writers of the New Testament just made it up. They made it up in order to build their movement and to consolidate their power. Well, if that's the case, then there are so many things that they wrote that just doesn't add up. It doesn't make any sense. For example, if the leaders of the early church just made all of this up, then why did Peter, who spent years with Jesus, say this? For we did not follow cleverly devised stories. In other words, what I'm sharing with you isn't a bunch of made-up stories. When we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses 
of his majesty. We were there. We heard him teach. We were there at the crucifixion. We saw him after the resurrection. Why did John, if this is just all made up, why did John begin his first epistle saying, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. Are these the words of people trying to deceive us? Tim Keller says, if the crucifixion didn't happen, why would the writers of the Gospels make it up? I mean, people in that day would have immediately concluded that anyone who's been crucified was a criminal. Or why would they depict their hero, Jesus, agonizing on the cross and crying out that God had abandoned him? I mean, that surely wouldn't impress anyone in that day. In fact, it would have had the opposite effect, that Jesus was weak and was a failure to his God. If the early Christian leaders made up what we read in the New Testament, then why would they present themselves so often in a negative light? I mean, if you're going to lie anyways, I mean, if you're just going to make this up, I mean, why not make yourself look good? Why would Peter, for example, portray himself kind of as a doofus? I mean, what, you know, always putting both of his feet in his mouth. Why would Peter portray himself denying Christ right at the moment of Jesus' greatest need? Why would Peter include the time when Jesus called him Satan and told him to get behind him? Why would James and John include the time when they were arguing over who was the greatest and the closest to Jesus, you know, this power trip. Why would they include that? I mean, if they made it all up anyways, why would they portray themselves as petty and jealous and as cowards? Why would they say that women were the first witnesses of Christ's resurrection in a culture where women had such low, a low status that their testimony was not admissible evidence in a court of law? But perhaps the one that gets me the most on all of this is if they made all of this up, why would they die for a lie? I mean, tradition tells us that Peter and Andrew and Philip were crucified. Bartholomew was flayed to death. James was beheaded. Matthew was put to death with a sword. Matthias was stoned to death. I mean, you look at it, and all of it just doesn't make any sense at all. Will Durant, historian and author of the story of civilization, does not claim to be a Christian. And yet he writes this about the writers of the New Testament. He says, they recorded many incidents that mere inventors would have concealed. The competition of the disciples for high places in the kingdom. Their flight after Jesus' arrest. Peter's denial of Christ. Christ's despairing cry on the cross. That a few simple men should in one generation have invented so powerful and 
appealing a personality, referring to Jesus, so lofty an ethic, and so inspiring a vision of human brotherhood would be a miracle far more incredible than any recorded in the Gospels. I, hear, I, I trust you hear what he's saying. He's saying there's no way these guys would have made this up. Another objection raised by skeptics is that the Bible was written too long after the events actually happened. And over time, myths were added to the historical record. And as a result, say the critics, many of the things that we read in the Bible, like Jesus' miracles, for example, were made up. They were embellished to make Jesus appear godlike, to make him appear greater and more powerful than he actually was. Well, what about this objection? Well, the truth is the Apostle Paul's letters were written just 15 to 25 years after Christ's death, not hundreds of years after. And they actually provide a summary of all the events of Jesus' life that were recorded a little later in the Gospels. They were written between 40 and 60 years after the death and resurrection of Christ. The writings of Paul included his miracles, his claims, his crucifixion, his resurrection. In fact, in Paul's letter to the Philippians, which historians date no more than 20 years after Christ's death, Christ is declared to be Lord and God, worthy of worship by the Christians of that day. They, years after his death, just a few years after the death, they proclaimed him to be God. They worshiped him as God. 1 Corinthians, for example, is widely accepted as being written by the Apostle Paul no later than A.D. 56, a little over 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is what Paul wrote there. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, referring to Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. And then notice what he says next. Most of whom are still living at the time that he wrote this. Though some have fallen asleep. That's not referring to what some of you are doing right now. Um, that's referring to the fact that they had died. Okay? All right. <laughs> then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Now in those days, we need to understand that the New Testament, for example, wasn't all bound together in one book. Every, um, every one, like 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and so forth, were separate documents that were being circulated around the church. And they were being read uh, in the church, in the services and, and so forth. In those days, when people wanted to remember something, they memorized it. Because most did not have the means, you know, they didn't have their iPads handy. 
They, they didn't have paper handy to write things down. And so they memorized things. And so the early Christians would memorize certain creeds of their faith and recite them and they would sing them in their worship services and they'd pass them around, uh, pass them on to new believers that they were mentoring. Well, the words that Paul gives here in 1 Corinthians 15 is, is one of those formal creeds that was circulating around before even Paul put his, um, wrote his um, letters. And these creeds were well known. They were being circulated among the believers of the early church. In fact, many believe that Paul received this uh, from Peter and also from James while he was visiting them in Jerusalem, which was just three years after he became a follower of Jesus Christ, which would have been about five years after Christ's crucifixion, death, and resurrection. Referring to this creed, uh, New Testament scholar Dr. James Dunn says, we can be entirely confident it was formulated within months of Jesus' death. All that to say that there is absolutely no basis for the claims that some have that the story of Jesus was written hundreds of years after he died and therefore can't be trusted. That simply isn't the case. The basic truths of the life, the teaching, the miracles, the atoning death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ were already in print. They were well known um, and, and by the early Christians within a few years after his death. Now that's significant because that means that there were people who were still alive who had witnessed what Christ taught, witnessed his death and resurrection, who would know if any of these writings were distorted, whether they were um, embellished or flat out wrong. I like the way Mike Bro explains it. He says, let's say that we're shooting free throws, you and I. We'll call you Bill. And let's say I say to you, hey, watch me leap from the free, the free throw line and dunk the ball. And then a couple of weeks later, you overhear me in the locker room bragging to a bunch of guys, yeah, Bill and I were shooting hoops and you should have seen me. I leapt from the free throw line with the grace of Michael, the power of Kobe, and I dunked the ball with the thunderous authority of Shaq. Now, if you heard me say that, you would say, what? You did what? You didn't do that. I was there. The truth is you jumped about two feet, tripped, and you got floor burn on your head is what happened, buddy. You see, you'd call me on that. You'd say, you're just making that up. That's not the way it was. Well, the same is true for the writings in the first century. Unlike the bi biography of Muhammad, which was written 125 years after his death, or the records of Buddha, which were written 350 years after the Buddha's death, 
As I've said, the Apostle Paul wrote most of his writings just 15 to 25 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And the rest of the gospel writers wrote theirs 40 to 60 years after the Christ's death and resurrection, which were early enough for actual witnesses to verify. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul refers to this. He says, more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time witnessed this, and most of them are still living. As Paul's writings and the gospel accounts of Jesus Christ were, were being, of his life, were, were being circulated around the early churches, if they were filled with untruths, these people would have stood up and said, that's just wrong, or that's embellished, that's not true. Now, shortly after Jesus' resurrection, Peter was speaking to a crowd in Jerusalem. And Peter says in Acts chapter 2, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. You see what he's saying here? He's saying, hey, everyone, I just want to remind you that you witnessed the teachings, the miracles, and, of course, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. Some of you, you saw Jesus heal blind Bartimaeus. Some of you went to Lazarus' funeral. And then a few days later, you saw him working out at the gym because Jesus had raised him from the dead. Come on, folks, you know these things to be true. And notice how the crowd responds. They didn't say, you're nuts. You don't know what you're talking about. No, it says in Acts 2.37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They said to Peter and the other apostles, what shall we do? And 3,000 of them were baptized that day. They believed in Jesus because they knew Peter was telling the truth about Jesus. You know, folks, it would have been impossible for this new faith, Christianity, to spread if what we read in the Bible about Jesus was made up. But that didn't happen. The early church and the New Testament record spread like wildfire despite the fact that it contained many references to the supernatural, to miracles and so forth. And that's because there were still enough people who were living who said, I was there. 25 of us were there. 500 of us were there. And it is true. Now there are those who, like Dan Brown, author of The Da Vinci Code, who have made headlines saying that in 325 A.D., the emperor Constantine decreed that Jesus was God and suppressed and destroyed all the evidence that Jesus was just a human teacher, including more than 80 other so-called gospels like the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary, and the Gospel of Judas. However, these conspiracy theories proposed by Dan Brown and many others 
is ignorant of the facts of history and the fact that, as I've mentioned, as early as five years after Christ's death, the early Christians were recording, reciting, and singing creeds in which Jesus is acknowledged and worshipped as God, Lord, and King. Are all of these so-called other Gospels were written much later between the, between the second and the fourth centuries, and none of them ties back to the original apostles of Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to talk about how the canon, or what's actually in our Bible, how that was established at another time. But let me give you a summary of what um, true authorities, expert authorities say about these so-called other Gospels. In the words of apologist Mark Middleberg, these other Gospels are predominantly Gnostic writings, highly sectarian, full of fictitious events and sayings that have no historical support and show a dreadful lack of understanding of Jesus' first century Jewish context or his teachings. A key example is the so-called Gospel of Thomas, the writing that claims to have been written by Thomas, one of the disciples of Jesus. The Gospel of Thomas is a collection of 114 hidden sayings that Jesus supposedly said. Now, in the 1993 book entitled The Five Gospels, a relatively small group of scholars referring to themselves as the Jesus Seminar, they granted the Gospel of Thomas as having equal status to that of the New Testament. Now, the majority of credible scholars believe the Gospel of Thomas was written about 175 A.D. at the earliest, and that, it, and that it was obviously written by someone other than Thomas, the disciple, because by 175 A.D., he would have been dead for probably about 100 years already. One of the reasons that scholars believe it was written no sooner than 175 A.D., is because many of the sayings of Jesus in the Gospel of Thomas, the ones that make sense, are identical or very close to what Jesus um, uh, is recorded as saying in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In other words, they're copied from the Gospels that we have in the New Testament, which tells you that whoever copied these sayings from the other Gospels, um, obviously wrote after the New Testament Gospels. Now, in addition to this, there are some sayings in the Gospel of Thomas that are totally alien to the Gospels of the New Testament. For example, contrary to the Bible, Jesus is quoted as telling his disciples this. If you fast, you will bring sin upon yourselves. Jesus told us in the Gospels to fast, portrayed it as a, a, a positive thing. But here, if you fast, you will bring sin upon yourselves. If you pray, you will be condemned. And if you give to charity, you will harm your spirits. Huh? 
In saying 114, Jesus quoted his teaching that every female who makes herself a male will enter the kingdom of heaven. Huh? I'll let you women figure that one out. In saying number seven, Jesus supposedly offers this amazing insight. Blessings on the lion if a human eats it, making the lion human. Foul is the human if a lion eats it, making the lion human. All together, huh? <laughs> you see, this shows how weak these conspiracy theories are. The Gospel of Thomas and the other Gospels weren't included in the, in, the, in the canon of the New Testament because they weren't worthy to be included. Now, other question, others question the trustworthiness of the Bible, insisting that there are blatant contradictions in it. For example, Matthew 28, verse 2, mentions that there was one angel at the tomb of Jesus. If you turn over to John chapter 20, verse 12, it lists two angels. There are several other examples of this kind of discrepancy between the various Gospels. The question is, is this a real contradiction? Well, let me explain to you this way. Suppose that you are at a mall and you bump into two of your friends, John and Bill. And while you're there talking to them, John tells you that a mutual friend of yours, Fred, has had a heart attack and he's in, um, in, in, in the emergency at Foothills Hospital. Well, later that day, you're talking with your wife and you say, oh, by the way, you know, I just ran into John today at the mall and he told me that Fred suffered a heart attack. He's in the hospital. Now, you make no mention of Bill. Bill was there, but you don't refer to him at all. Does that mean that you lied? Does that mean you distorted any of the facts? You see, to leave out information does not constitute a contradiction. Matthew or Mark never say that there was only one angel. Neither should a lack of understanding or an unresolved difficulty be seen as an error. Many have claimed that they have found supposed errors in the Bible, but with the passing of time, these have been refuted. For example, Dr. Frank Harbour, in his book, Reasons for Believing, he says that in the late 19th century, the Institute of Paris issued 82 errors in the Bible they believed could discredit Christianity. Well, that's well over 100 years ago. And since that time, all of those 82 difficulties have been resolved with new insights and particularly with archaeological evidence. And by the way, in a future session, I'm going to be giving a number of examples of how archaeology has verified the, 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 the events, the people, the places that we see in the scriptures. Now, having said all of that, I do need to draw your attention to a more recent attack on the reliability of the Bible that has shaken up some people. In 2006, one of the world's leading textual critics, Dr. Bart Ehrman, 
He wrote a book called Misquoting Jesus that was a best-selling book for some time. You may have read it. You may have heard about it. And I just want to speak to some of its conclusions or inferences, perhaps. In fact, Lee Strobel received an email from a young adult who said this shortly after reading the book. Please help me. I've just read Bart Ehrman's book, Misquoting Jesus. I was raised in the church, and I'm now 26 years old. This book has devastated my faith. I don't want to be kept in the dark. I want to know what really is going on in the Bible and what I should believe, even if it goes against what I've believed since I was a little boy. Is Ehrman correct? Now, before I talk about Ehrman's claims, I need to give you a little background. First of all, in case you don't know, the original writings of the New Testament no longer exist. The original documents were written on papyrus and have long been reduced to dust. However, we, and we're going to discuss this another time, but we do have thousands of copies of the original writings. Of course, the question that arises is, and that's kind of always in the back of our minds is, how accurate are these copies? Well, Dr. Ehrman set off a lot of alarm bells, and I might add, sold a ton of his books because he claims that there are between 200,000 to 400,000 variants between all of the manuscript copies that we have of the New Testament. Now, of course, the underlying message he wants to convey or wanted to convey was that the Bible really can't be trusted because it's full of errors. Now, if you want to read more about all of this, I'm going to direct you to Lee Strobel's book entitled The Case for the Real Jesus. But you need to be aware of some things. To begin with, there are tens of thousands of copies of the New Testament manuscripts. And so when Dr. Ehrman says that there are between 200,000 to 400,000 variants, he's not saying that every copy has this many errors because, just for your information, the entire New Testament only has about 138,000 words in total. No, what he's actually saying is the tens of thousands of, new, uh, of, of the New Testament manuscripts have a total of about 200,000 to 400,000 variations between them. Now, that raises the question, what is a variant? Well, a variant can be difference, differences of a word. It can be a difference of a phrase. It can be a difference of a letter of a word. And so, for example, if you have one manuscript that says, Lord and you have 10,000 that say Jesus, that's a variant. You now have 10,000 variants. According to Dr. Bruce Metzger of Princeton University, if a single word is misspelled in 2,000 manuscripts, well, that's counted as 2,000 variants. According to expert Dr. Daniel Wallace, upwards of 80% of all the variants that Ehrman identifies between all of the manuscripts, most of them are spelling errors, like spelling the name John with two N's rather than with one. Other errors are where a scribe was obviously inattentive and wrote the word and 
instead of the word Lord. But of these words, I should say rather, those words, both of those words, look somewhat similar in the Greek. Dr. Metzger points out that often scribes were attempting to copy faded from faded manuscripts, and given that eyeglasses weren't invented until 1373 in Venice, one can see why the scribes, even though the vast majority of scribes wanted to do their absolute best and followed strict rules in terms of copying these manuscripts, you can understand why at times they may have made a mistake in a letter or perhaps maybe even in a word. However, only about 1% of all the variants between the, the thousands of copies of the New Testament affect the meaning of the text to some degree. But even these, according to Dr. Wallace, are not really significant in terms of the main doctrines of Scripture. Let me give you an example of just a couple. In Romans 5.1 it says, we have peace in some of the manuscripts. And it says, let us have peace in some of the other manuscripts. It's different, but not hugely different. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 4, in some of the manuscripts, the verse says, thus we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Other manuscripts say, thus we are writing these things so that your joy may be complete. Okay, you know, the meaning is affected, but no foundational beliefs are in jeopardy. Now, Dr. Wallace does agree with Ehrman that sometimes the scribes did intentionally change the text, but rarely was it to be deceptive or to introduce a new teaching. In almost every case, it was to make the scripture more explicit. For example, through the centuries, the church started using uh, sections of scripture for daily readings. These are called lectionaries. About 2,200 of our Greek manuscripts are lectionaries, where they will set forth a year's worth of daily and weekly scripture readings. So here's what, what happens, says Wallace. In the Gospel of Mark, for, sorry about that. In the Gospel of Mark, for example, there are 89 verses in a row where the name Jesus isn't mentioned once. Just the pronoun he is used to refer to Jesus. Well, if you're going to excerpt a passage for a daily lectionary reading, you can't start with the sentence that says, when he was going to Galilee, because the reader would know who he refers to. And so the scribe would replace the word he with the word or the name Jesus in order to be more specific in the lectionary. The ultimate meaning of the passage wasn't altered one bit, but Ehrman counts it as a variant every single time. After carefully examining Dr. Ehrman's case in his book, Misquoting Jesus, Dr. Wallace concludes, there is nothing, nothing in Ehrman's book that proves that any doctrine or teaching of Christianity in the New Testament manuscripts is jeopardized. 
He writes, let me repeat the basic thesis that has been argued since 1707. No cardinal or essential doctrine is altered by any textual variant that has plausibility of going back to the original. The evidence for that has not changed to this day. Now, you know what breaks my heart in all of this? Just like Dan Brown's consp conspiracy theory in the Da Vinci Code, this book of Dr. Ehrman was a bestseller, received all kinds of publicity, leaving people with the impression, I mean, when you hear of 200,000 errors, <laughs> Wouldn't you be left with the impression that the Bible's filled with errors and therefore unreliable? Which, in fact, this isn't the case at all. Which leaves me wondering how many people have read Ehrman's book or books like it, or perhaps have heard about its claims, and rather than doing their own research, have just simply concluded that, well, I knew that all along. The Bible's just full of errors and it's not worth my time. If you would have to admit that your skepticism of the Bible can be attributed at least in part to authors or professors or other people who have spoken disparagingly about the Bible, I want to challenge you to do your own research instead of blindly accepting their word for it. Now, there are a number of other evidences of uh, the reliability of the Bible that I can't wait to share with you in the future. Because, as I said earlier, this book, this book is no ordinary book. The more I have read it, the more that I have meditated on it and studied it, the more my conviction has grown that it's the truth and it is totally trustworthy. But all of you, but all of you have to make up your own minds about this. You have to come to the place where you develop a kind of conviction about this book because it says some pretty sweeping things about our lives, it really does. Millions of intelligent, rational, moral, non-deluded people trust in this book and in the God who authored it. And so I want to challenge you not to ignore this book or flippantly write it off because some professor or some author is critical of it or makes you feel like you're a fool for believing that it's true. No, I challenge you to do your homework. Determine whether it's true or false. Whether it's something that you're going to read and study and build your life on and stake your eternity on. Or whether you're just going to go out and stake your life on something or someone else. For you see, the Bible says that one day you're going to stand before a holy God. And at that time, you're going to need a savior. And friend, this book is the only one that tells you how to meet, how to know, and how to be a friend of that savior.
Oh, I realize that you may not believe all that. You may believe that when you die, your candle goes out and that's it. And you have every right to believe that. And you know, if, if you're right, then I guess you have nothing to lose and quite frankly, none of us do. But if the Bible is right and you're wrong, then my friend, you have everything to lose. And that's my concern. That's my concern for you. So please don't write off this book as irrelevant, at least not until you've rolled up your sleeves and you've done your homework. I've done my homework. And I'm here to tell you that I don't judge this book anymore. No, this book judges me in the sense that it makes me face the truth about myself. But also in the sense that it shows me the truth of who I am in Jesus Christ. This book is far more than a bookend. No, it's the light that gives wisdom and direction in life. It strengthens me in times of weakness. It comforts me in times of sorrow. This book teaches me how to build a healthy marriage, family, healthy friendships. It affirms and blesses me when I'm on the right track. It gives me perspective about my past. It gives me wisdom for the present and it gives me hope for the future. It is a rock upon which I stand and will not be moved by the shifting sands of time. This is no ordinary book because it's God's book. It's God's book. Would you stand with me for closing prayer? Heavenly Father, I praise and thank you for revealing yourself through your creation, through the living word, through your son Jesus, and yes, through the written word, the Bible. I'm so grateful that you chose to reveal your greatness and your character and your grace through your word. I'm thankful that you gave us a roadmap, a guidebook on how to live this life to the fullest and how to prepare ourselves for the next. I'm so glad that there's a, a blueprint, Lord, for relationships. That there are principles and precepts by which we can measure all the speculation that's going on around us. Forgive me, Lord. Forgive us all for neglecting to read and reflect and meditate on such a precious gift. Lord, so many lives are in turmoil and in despair. So many marriages are on the rocks. So many families are breaking up because this book has been either ignored or it's just been violated. I pray for every person in this place that each one of us, Lord, will first and foremost surrender our lives every day to you. And we'll invite you to live your life through us. I pray that we will just have this deep conviction that you speak to us most clearly through the Bible. And therefore, that we will open it often, that we will drink from its wisdom, we'll listen to your whispers, and we will follow you faithfully. 
to the glory of God. And for the sake of a world, Lord, that is looking to us and wondering whether this Jesus that we know and love really makes a difference. For I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.